Hello again, everyone, wherever you may be, and welcome to the 157th edition of KHY Community Radio's Capital Week, your window on the world of Iowa politics, where we explore and analyze who's been making news in and around the state capitol, what that news is, and what it all means. We are glad you're with us. I'm Dennis Hart, joined as always by my partner in politics, Laura Bellin of the blog site Bleeding Heartland. Welcome, Laura. Good to be here, Dennis. Laura, here we are, the Monday after last Monday's Iowa caucuses. Now, everyone knows what happened then. Donald Trump won big, so we won't go over much of that. But there has been a whole lot of fallout in the Republican political world since that night. And, of course, the Iowa legislature is back in session, and we are all over all of that. Let's start with our final Capital Week caucus almanac fallout from the Iowa caucuses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out of the GOP presidential race yesterday. Yes, and it was a surprise that he was out so early. I think that there there was a general sense that he didn't have much place to go after Iowa. But the fact that he finished second instead of third, I think most people thought he would at least hang in there until South Carolina. DeSantis started his campaign last year leading Trump into the national polls, and his descent began certainly almost immediately afterward. Yes. I mean, he first of all, he waited to formally announce his campaign until about six months after the 2022 midterm elections. And the peak, his peak was really in those couple of months shortly after the midterms, when there was a perception that maybe Donald Trump had too much baggage and that he was hurting the party. And maybe Ron DeSantis, who was coming off a big reelection victory, might be the way of the future. Trump, of course, won big last Monday night, as we reported on Tuesday morning. 51% of GOP caucus voters supported him. Uh, DeSantis finished second, 21%. Nikki Haley won 19%. Trump met expectations. And after that, Ramaswamy dropped out and endorsed Trump. Asa Hutchinson dropped out. And then on Friday, Tim Scott, who had already dropped out, endorsed Trump. Yes. I mean, the Iowa caucuses traditionally do winnow the field. And we've talked about before that this year, the televised debates and the criteria for qualifying for the debate stage seem to winnow the field well before the Iowa caucuses. But they still serve their role. As we mentioned, DeSantis decided that there was no there was really no purpose of him going forward because he was polling in single digits in New Hampshire. So he wasn't really a factor. I should say, I mean, it's arguable whether Trump met expectations. I mean, I've seen people say he did win big. Certainly a 30-point victory was a record in the Iowa caucuses. But on the other hand, when you consider that he was the de facto incumbent, even though he's not currently serving as president, uh, some people still felt that it was a little bit of a disappointing showing. I think that if you consider that Donald Trump got 51 percent, Vivek Ramaswamy, who was running on a very similar to Trump platform, got 8 percent. And frankly, Ron DeSantis, who was also running on a, you know, be like Trump, but without the the baggage concept, and he got 20%. Really, you could say that Trump got almost 80% of the vote, was supporting policies like what Trump offers. Now it is indeed a two-person race, which is what Nikki Haley wanted. And the next one is in New Hampshire on Tuesday, as we go live on Monday night. Most polls show Trump well ahead in New Hampshire. Question is, is New Hampshire going to be the end of the road for Nikki Haley? I think it will be. She has talked about continuing on to South Carolina, which is, of course, her home state. But if she finishes a distant second in South in New Hampshire, I think that's a bit difficult. What I'm reading, the campaign reports from New Hampshire, is that this is very low energy. They're not seeing the crowds. They're not seeing the excitement. They're not seeing the guard signs. They're not seeing as much advertising. And so I haven't seen anyone who thinks that Nikki Haley is going to be exceeding expectations there. You had an interesting take on Bleeding Heartland, there's a plug for your blog site, on the effect that Ron DeSantis has had on both Kim Reynolds and on the state of Iowa. 
Yes, I was thinking about this yesterday because it's easy for people to say, well, Ron DeSantis, he just was on a steady downward slide from the moment he announced and he really ended up not being a factor and he didn't do very well and so on. And I think that there's a lot of truth to all of that. But when you think about it, the policies that he enacted in Florida and then many of those policies Governor Kim Reynolds and the Republican-controlled legislature also enacted in Iowa, I mean, those are in place and most of them are still in effect and they will be in effect for years. And among those that you mentioned, uh, shunning COVID-19 mitigation and uh, being the leaders of the pack in enacting laws targeting LGBTQ residents. Yeah, so Kim Reynolds, when she was stumping for DeSantis, this was something she often said that she got to know him better during the pandemic, that the two of them, the way she phrased it, that we were out on the island, even the Trump administration didn't like some of their policies opening things up, and that, you know, she claimed that they were proven correctly. You know, other people would argue that the death per capita death rates in Iowa and Florida were higher than some other states. But in any case, she viewed that as a triumph. I think the LGBTQ uh, discrimination laws, that's very important because the first few years Kim Reynolds was governor, she did not really express any interest in pushing that kind of legislation. And the first time she expressed her support for a transgender sports bill was in April of 2021. She was on a Fox News town hall event with several governors, including Ron DeSantis, and he was about to sign that bill. And all of a sudden she said, we're working on that and I'd like to have that on my desk. And that was literally news to everybody in the Iowa legislature because she hadn't introduced or supported that kind of a bill. And she followed that up, of course, in 2022. They did pass a transgender sports ban. Then in 2023, following the example of Florida and some other states, a ban on gender affirming care for minors, a school bathroom bill, restrictions. I mean, DeSantis was the one who first passed what they what is informally called don't say gay for elementary school curriculum. Then Iowa picked up on that. So really, I mean, it, the policies that he was pushing in part to make himself more appealing to a national Republican primary electorate, that those were very influential in both Florida and Iowa. And let's not forget the school voucher program. Florida adopted that years before Governor Reynolds got her plan through the legislature last year. Yes. And Florida started out with a smaller program. This has been the trend in a lot of states. Arizona was another one where they started with a very limited voucher program and then gradually expanded it over time. And uh, Governor Reynolds, initially, the bills that she was pushing in 2021 and 2022 would have been smaller, but she wasn't able to get those through the legislature. Then, of course, after defeating some of the Iowa House Republican incumbents in the 2022 primaries and having that big reelection victory, she was able to go for a much broader bill the one that the legislature passed last year. But yes, Ron DeSantis, also one of the Republican governors leading the way on that issue. All right, let's move on. There's plenty going on in Iowa, including something happened today, Monday, as we go live on Monday night. This is, on January 22nd, the 51st anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion, the U.S. Supreme Court decision. And Governor Reynolds told anti-abortion advocates at the annual Rally for Life event in the Rotunda this Monday afternoon, she's never going to back down from protecting the innocent and unborn, in her words. Yes, and that's something she has been consistent the first year she was governor in 2018. She signed that near-total abortion ban. Uh, she tried to get that reinstated. She then called the legislature back in last summer to pass almost a carbon copy of that 2018 bill. So that is an issue where she has been very consistent. She also urged anti-abortion advocates to support policies she is touting in her condition of the state address. 
Yeah. So she had talked about extending postpartum Medicaid coverage from 60 days to 12 months. There's a little bit of a caveat there because she wants to reduce the eligibility of it. So there would be a lot of pregnant Iowans who currently qualify for Medicaid coverage who would lose that Medicaid coverage under her proposal. But the idea is that uh, new mothers would get 12 months of mothers within a certain income level. They would get 12 months of guaranteed Medicaid coverage. She also has some other proposals. Of course, they've had some trouble. She had this mom's program. The state has had trouble getting that off the ground because they haven't been able to find uh, somebody to administer that. But but she's been talking about, and this is also something, frankly, that Ron DeSantis talked about in his speeches, that that in addition to opposing abortion, that they the Republican Party needs to do more to support moms and babies. Meanwhile, Rita Hart, the chair of the state Democratic Party, said in a statement that the anniversary of Roe was a stark reminder, her words, to vote in every election. I think every Democratic candidate running for any state or federal office this year, almost anywhere in the country, is going to be talking about abortion rights a lot. It's been, as we've talked about on past shows, it was a winner at the ballot box in states as diverse as Michigan, Kentucky, and Kansas. And I should say that the Des Moines Register, in its early story online today, uh, quoting Rita Hart, misspelled H-A-R-T, not that hard to spell that. That's my name as well, though I'm not related to Rita. And it was uh, kind of embarrassing for a newspaper that is the news that Iowa depends on. Yes, well, the copy editing has been cut back, not just at the Register, but at most other newspapers. There's Copy editors hardly exist anymore, frankly. Indeed. All right, a related story. President Biden today, Monday, took steps to expand abortion medication and contraception. Yes. Yeah, so this is, would, is is an executive action. It's related to the Affordable Care Act, which, of course, was enacted in 2010 under Barack Obama. I anticipate a lawsuit over this. There, we've seen a lot of litigation with federal judges being very willing to take action to invalidate executive branch rules. So I don't think we've heard the end of the story. But certainly the Biden administration is trying to emphasize reproductive rights and health care. All right. And some news about U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. He was in the hospital for a time last week for what was called an infection. He has been released now. He's expected to be back to work and maybe already is this week. And we really don't know what was going on there. Yeah, they did not say it was just an unspecified infection. I mean, of course, and so it also wasn't clear what his condition was when he was admitted to the hospital of course, he is 90 years old, so infections can become dangerous very quickly. So it seems like they were a little bit proactive. But it sounded like he was posting on social media after his release that he was in good spirits and looking forward to getting back to work. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Let's talk about some other numbers here as we talk about the Iowa legislature. Week two, the GOP holds a 64 to 36 advantage over Democrats in the state Senate and a 34-16 advantage in the state House. So that colors everything we're going to be talking about. Last week, State House lawmakers passed a resolution supporting Israel and condemning Hamas's October 7th attack, and there were Palestinian protesters shouting loudly. Yes, and so I watched the House debate on this, and it was a very short debate. Really, nobody got up to speak against the resolution, and they passed it on a voice vote, so it was very hard to hear. There were some people who shouted no. Uh, State Representative Sammy Sheets said that he voted against the resolution. Also, State Representative Austin Baith, uh, they, but those are the only two who I saw definitely confirmed that they voted against the resolution. It was uh, there a similar resolution has been introduced in the Iowa Senate, but not come up for debate. I mean, it is a, a rather one sided that uh, talks about full support for Israel and its efforts to uh, 
to get rid of Hamas in uh, the Gaza Strip. It doesn't really talk about anything uh, like if you think about the way the Biden administration has been talking about the situation in the Middle East and the need to reduce civilian casualties, for instance, in Gaza, there's nothing in the resolution that talks about civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. All right. Let's talk about Governor Reynolds and AEAs. Oh, my. AEAs, Area Education Agencies. There is a continuing hoo-ha over all of this. And we should point out that the governor walked back last week one of the main changes she had called for earlier. And this is a mess. This is really interesting to me because it's not very common that Kim Reynolds goes to backtracks at all on legislation that she wants. I mean, the, the way this was introduced, it was very similar to the state government reorganization bill last year, where she dropped the bill on the legislature. It, it really seems like she was expecting that the legislature would pass it with few, if any, changes. And they, she must have been getting a lot of pushback. I haven't seen a lot of Republican legislators publicly criticizing the bill, but I have heard that that a lot of people were very concerned. They were hearing from their superintendents and families in their own districts. So originally, her idea was that the area education agencies, they would be restricted to only being able to offer special education services. And one thing that would change under the bill, as she says she's going to revise it, by the way, I just checked again this afternoon, no amendment has been posted online, so I haven't been able to read the text. But the idea is that school districts would be able to contract with AEAs for other services, such as professional development, some general education services, some media services that AEAs have been providing to school districts for decades. I'm not sure, though, what that means for the crisis management. One thing I've heard from several superintendents speak out about is that AEAs often send someone to the scene if there's a distressing situation like a suicide in the community or a, a, some, a student who was killed perhaps in an accident, or most recently in the case after the Perry school shooting, AEA staff were on the scene. And so I'm not sure whether that would still be allowed under the governor's revised proposal. So the governor is saying there probably is still a need for AEAs, but on Friday she told Iowa Press on PBS that Iowa does not need nine of them. She said when we started out there were 15 AEAs in the 1970s. She said the nine agency administrators have a compensation package of about 300000 bucks each. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, okay, it is true, and I've I've seen a lot of back and forth on this. So the AEAs, the top administrators typically have doctorates and many years of experience in education. So they are well compensated. I mean, the AEA system, it was created in the 1970s. By the way, a Republican trifecta government did introduce that. And it's a system that many school districts are happy with. I mean, the governor keeps saying that she hears from school districts that some of them aren't happy with the services they're getting from the AEAs. But if you look at the lobbyist declarations on the bill, all of the organizations that, that represent the urban schools, the rural schools, school administrators, school boards, they're registered against this bill. So I'm not really sure who are the people who apparently was advocating for it. I know there are some people in the education community who are pushing the legislature to order some kind of comprehensive year-long study and then maybe come back and work on this next year. Of course, the governor really wants it to happen this year. We will keep you fully apprised on what happens with AEAs right here on Capital Week. It is 15 minutes and 10 seconds exactly after the hour, wherever you're listening to us. And you are in tune with KJOY Radio's Capital Week, your one-stop source for everything political going on in Iowa. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bellin, and we are here every week at this time, have been for about three years to talk about politics. Well, let's talk about some more politics here. There was some more bills, a lot of bills introduced last week and talked about and passed through subcommittees. One of them, 
a bill seeking to halt local bans and restrictions on conversion therapy. This one controversial. So conversion therapy is an expression for a therapy that purports to be able to make someone who is gay or lesbian and make them straight, basically. And it's it, it within the mainstream psychiatric and medical community, this is a discredited practice. But so there have been some efforts at the local government level to ban it. There are actually whole states that have banned conversion therapy. But for instance, the Lynn County supervisors a few years ago banned the practice. And Waterloo City Council passed a ban last year and then repealed it a few months later under a threat for a a lawsuit from an organization. So it's not clear how widespread conversion therapy is, but clearly uh, some of the majority party lawmakers believe that it is prevalent enough to be worth protecting in, in a state law. So this fits a trend of bills, well, I guess bills that the LGBTQ community don't support, but it also fits another trend of the last eight years or so, which is the Republican majority in the Iowa legislature taking power away from local governments. And the Republicans on an Iowa House panel on Monday voted to move forward with a bill that would restrict instruction of gender-neutral language by language teachers in grades 9 through 12. I should explain that in many languages, some nouns refer to people are assigned genders depending upon the gender of the person. El hermano, for example, in Spanish means brother. La hermana means sister. As I watched the video of this subcommittee, and Dennis, honestly, it was very confusing. I studied the Russian language, which also has gender. It has masculine and feminine uh, endings, but it also has some neuter or neutral endings. So the way this bill is written, it's not clear whether it is just restricting the use of certain gender neutral pronouns or whether more broadly the neutral language is not allowed. And the the person, Bill Gustoff, who is the Iowa House Republican from Polk County who introduced the bill, he said that he had heard from a couple of teachers that this was something that they were being asked to do, but he didn't want to specify what school district this supposedly is happening in. And I find it hard to believe that there are high schools where teachers are teaching French or Spanish or, or one of these other languages with just without teaching the masculine and feminine forms of words. So it's very confusing about exactly what this bill is trying to accomplish. Yeah. Up next is a hearing on that bill at the House Education Committee. Here's another one, and this is very interesting. A bill to limit the release of jail mug shots. And this was passed by a House subcommittee that it would prevent the immediate release of most jail booking photos in Iowa. What's the rationale behind this? Well, it's it's interesting because <laughs> this is really a bipartisan bill. I mean, this passed the subcommittee with the support of the Democrat on the subcommittee. And the lawyers, uh, the Iowa Association for Justice, which represents a lot of attorneys, including defense attorneys, they support the bill because they say, you know, what often happens is someone is arrested, they release the mugshot, it gets a lot of media coverage. And then sometimes later, the charges are dropped or the person is acquitted. And yet when you Google the person's name, you see the mugshot right away. Now, I saw some media commentary that said that tied the introduction of this bill to the fact that state Senator Adrian Dickey was arrested last summer during Ragbri. I should say, by the way, I submitted records requests, including for jail booking materials for Senator Dickey, and those were not provided to me. So I don't know, it, it, maybe some other media were able to get hold of his booking photo, but I was not. So, But in any case, some people have said, this is why this bill is happening now. But I do think that if it is brought to the floor of the Iowa House or Senate, I do think that you would see a lot of bipartisan support. Of course, law enforcement, the County Attorneys Association is against this bill. They think sometimes it can be important to get the mugshot out there.
Right. They say because it helps residents correctly identify who's been accused of a crime. So there are, I think, strong arguments really on both sides here. Yes, I think the way the bill is written, there would be some exceptions where people could apply, where law enforcement could release the photo. But just in routine situations, they wouldn't be able to. And again, the concern is that uh, once a photo like that is on the Internet, it follows people forever. Yep. All right. Another bill introduced last week and approved by an Iowa House subcommittee, a bill to combat fake swatting calls. Okay, a swatting call is where you call in a fake report of danger or shooting. It gets a law enforcement response. Iowa schools saw it just last week on the same day that this bill was advanced uh, in the House. Yes, it seems to be something that's happening more often, and that's why the Department of Public Safety, I think, wants this bill to pass. I, I should say that the Democrat on the subcommittee, he was very supportive of the bill, Brian Meyer of Des Moines, but he did caution that it's not likely that they can trace a lot of these calls. But in theory, if they can trace some of these swatting calls, these people could be charged with a felony for doing that. I mean, it certainly wastes a lot of money. It wastes law enforcement resources. It can cause chaos. It can cause classes to be canceled at school. So it's definitely something the government wants to deter. Yeah, and it would make it a Class D felony punishable by up to five years in prison to report certain false information. If that false report results in someone being injured or killed, subject to a Class C felony, 10 years in prison. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, thankfully, that has not happened in Iowa, to my knowledge, but we have certainly seen in other states where a swatting call led to an incident where uh, uh, law enforcement ended up shooting somebody. And in a related story, there was a rally at the Capitol let guns be in locked vehicles at schools last week. So this is a bill we talked about last year because the Iowa House did approve this. The Iowa Firearms Coalition organized the rally. They are the official state affiliate of the National Rifle Association. And this is one of their top priorities. Of course, the legislature has already enacted many of the Iowa Firearms Coalition's other priorities. The main reason why this bill was not brought up in the Iowa Senate last year, as far as, as I heard, was that the insurance industry is very concerned about this. There were provisions in the bill that basically said insurance carriers couldn't refuse to offer policies that, uh, to school districts that allowed guns on their grounds. And that was something the insurance industry, which is also a pretty powerful lobby group in Iowa, they were not happy with it. So we'll see where this goes. But yes, as you say, they did rally. The Iowa Firearms Coalition did rally last week at the Capitol. And in a related story, Governor Reynolds said last Friday that more gun laws would not have prevented the deadly shooting we've reported on in weeks past at Perry High School. She said in her words, there is just evil out there. Yes. And I mean, we still really don't know what was going on. To, as far as I know, we still haven't even been told whether the gunman was able to access the firearms at home, or whether there were unsecured firearms, whether he found them in another, he took them from somebody else's home. So there's a lot we don't know, but it does seem that the majority party has basically ruled out doing anything to tighten Iowa gun laws in response to that shooting. Meanwhile, last week, Senate lawmakers advanced a bill through a subcommittee that would change the state's definition of medical cannabis to include forms of oral, topical, and inhalable cannabis, including raw cannabis flower. Yeah, this is something that they, I mean, a lot of people have been advocating for. Iowa's medical cannabis program is really one of the most restrictive in the country. There are still a few states that don't have any medical cannabis, but of the states that have medical cannabis, Iowa's is really very restrictive in terms of the forms of the the parts of the plant, the concentration levels. And so I, I think that the manufacturers are hoping that this can make the program more viable if they allow more forms of the plant.
Meanwhile, the State Department of Corrections filed two bills asking lawmakers to make an exception to the state's medical cannabis program. These were companion bills introduced in the Iowa House and Senate, and uh, Carl Olson, who's the head of Iowa Iowans for Medical Marijuana, was the one who brought this to my attention, that basically what they want to make sure that if somebody obtains a medical cannabis card through Iowa's program and then they are later incarcerated, they want to make sure that they aren't able to get access to the cannabis while they're incarcerated. That's how I understand that, because I think there are problems with federal law if you are allowing cannabis in a, a penitentiary. And we want to make sure we have time for this one. A federal lawsuit was filed on your behalf saying the House Chief Clerk, the State House Chief Clerk, has arbitrarily applied an ever-shifting credentialing system to limit your ability to gather and report political news from the House Chamber. This involves you. Let's talk about this. Yeah, so this actually goes back, Dennis, even longer than we've been on the air. So the Institute for Free Speech, which is a national organization, a nonpartisan organization, filed the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa last Friday. And I first requested media credentials in the Iowa House in 2019, and I've been unsuccessful every year. Uh, when And the lawsuit lays out several claims under the First Amendment, basically that the Iowa House, initially when I applied, there was no written policy. They've since adopted a couple of different forms of the written policy, but uh, there are issues that the lawsuit asserts that there are aspects of the policy that are too broad, too vague, and also unconstitutional as applied to me because they're not applied equally to me uh, compared to the other state house reporters who have access to the press bench in the Iowa House. And again, why are they denying you access? Uh, I actually, the last three years in a row, there has been no reason given other than the House Chief Clerk saying that upon review, they have determined that I don't meet the terms of the policy, but then have not provided a specific reason. So the, the policy says that to obtain workspace in the Iowa House, that uh, somebody has to be a journalist, a correspondent of repute in the profession who provides original nonpartisan news to a broad segment of the public and abides by the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics. Those are some of the key uh, portions of the policy. And uh, I have I have maintained that I do comply with all aspects of the policy. And so it's not clear on what grounds my applications have been rejected. Hey, lawmakers, just listen to Capital Week on Monday nights. There are also replays and you can see how nonpartisan we really are on this broadcast. All right. We got a few other things we have to talk about involving races. A Democrat is running in State House District 51. Last week, we talked about how two Republicans are also running Marty Chetty and Brett Barker, but there is a Democrat. So this is an open seat. This The district, the general contour of this district is it's much of Story County outside the city of Ames and much of Marshall County outside the city of Marshalltown and, and the southeastern portion of the county. So this is an area, it's Republican leaning. It's not one of the most deeply red areas of the state. It is Republican leaning, but it's an open seat because state representative Dave Dio is not going to seek reelection. So we had mentioned that two Republicans, former Story County Supervisor Marty Chitty and the Story County GOP Chair Brett Barker are seeking the nomination. And what I wasn't aware of is that Ryan Condon declared last August that he is going to run as a Democrat. So far, he's the only Democrat who has announced. He uh, lives in Nevada. He works for the State Department of Health and Human Services. He uh, assesses income eligibility for food assistance and other programs. Prior to that, he was a child support recovery person. And he's talking, the main issues that he's emphasizing in the campaign are reorienting state government 
toward common working people. He is opposed to the school voucher program and um, opposed to the restrictions on abortion, among other things. So there will be a competitive Republican primary. As far as I can tell right now, it doesn't look like there's going to be a competitive Democratic primary in that House District 51. Speaking of competitive primaries, let's talk about Congressional District 4. The incumbent is Republican Randy Feenstra, and a Democratic candidate has dropped out. Yeah, so we had reported late last summer that uh, Ryan Melton was running again. He was Feenster's opponent in 2022. And Jay Brown, an allergist in Ames, he had announced he was running. But just before the end of the year, he announced on Facebook that he decided not to seek the nomination. He's fully supporting Ryan Melton in that race. And I haven't heard of any other candidate. So it looks like Ryan Melton is going to be the challenger again. The interesting thing is that Feenstra, who didn't have a challenger in 2022, of course, he defeated the former representative Steve King in 2020 in that GOP primary. It turns out that now, this month, he has a GOP primary opponent, Kevin Virgil. He is going to, it appears he's going to be running uh, to Feenstra's right, and he has the full support of Steve King so far. So haven't seen that much from Kevin Virgil, but um, Feenstra, of course, has raised a lot of money, and incumbents are always favored in a primary. But as we saw in 2020, uh, incumbents don't always win a primary. 30 seconds left. Why is Steve King so uh, upset about uh, Randy Feenstra? They're both Republicans. Well, I mean, he's very upset by the way that campaign went, by the way the Republican establishment and a lot of the groups combined to try to take him out of Congress. I think he feels that that wasn't fair, that there were some media reports that misquoted or misrepresented his views. And he also just frankly, he feels that Feenstra is not conservative enough for the district. His What he told the media at, at Kevin Virgil's announcement is that he thinks Kevin Virgil is a better fit for the district because he is more conservative. So I'm not sure what the main issues are going to be that Kevin Virgil will emphasize, though. Laura, it's time to go, but we'll be back next week. We'll be here. I'll be ready. All right. We are out of time. You have been listening to Capital Week on KHOI Community Radio. A reminder that the views and opinions expressed here did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KHOI or its staff. Laura and I will indeed be back here next week at the same time, and we'll be talking about everything interesting, important, or entertaining about politics, Iowa style, because that's what we do, and that's what we've done for the past three years. And next week, As an extra added attraction, I will be coming to you live from Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Now, who would not want to hear that? See you then. Until then, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. We appreciate it and we value it. Between now and Mickey Mouse time, let's all go ahead and have a safe, healthy, and you bet, healthy week and happy week.